Hi, this is Billy Campbell from Sci-Fi's Helix, and you are listening to Genretainment. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Genretainment over here on SciFiPulseRadio.com. We're your hosts, Marks. And Julie, and Genretainment is where we talk about what's happening in the world of TV, film, and web series. We give you interviews with writers, directors, producers, and actors in both independent and not-so-independent creations. And for today's episode, we speak to author, television, and film writer, producer, and director, Paul Chitlick. And we learn how he broke into script writing, his work on the new Twilight Zone and other TV projects, his newest film projects, why he was nominated for a GLAAD Award, and we talk about the second edition of his book, Rewrite, a step-by-step guide to strength and structure, characters, and drama in your screenplay. Yes, he gives some excellent tips to writers on how to rewrite their scripts. Yes, now before we get started with our interview... We should point out that the music you just heard at the beginning of the show was a snippet from the theme song for our web series, Reality on Demand. It's a song composed and performed by our friend Tishan Hardy. You can find our web series at realityondemandseries.com. Now let's get started with our interview. Hello, Paul. Welcome to the show. Um, Hi. Now, before we talk about the second edition of your book, Rewrite Strength Instructor Characters and Drama in Your Screenplay, I want to get a little bit into your background. So can you tell us how you got into writing and producing? <laughs> wow. That's a pretty long story, but I think <laughs> a short form. I started off, uh, when I was in college, I wanted to be a novelist. And I had lived in Spain during my junior year, went to the University of Madrid. So I decided to go back there when I got out of school and start my writing career. But uh, it was kind of tough to make a living there as an illegal worker. So (laughs) eventually I did publish something there, but it was poetry in Spanish, which is kind of a strange thing, but that's the way my mind was working at the time. Then I went to London and I worked as uh, a whole rash of different kinds of jobs, but ended up being a journalist uh, on a daily news service, which was great great training for um, copywriting for being uh, for proofreading for writing to a deadline and a number of other things I also contributed magazine articles and things like that and my first published short story but after living there for in London for uh, four years I decided to go back to the States and when I landed I didn't have very much money so I went to work in the trades that I could which were uh, translating, because I did speak Spanish fluently, and I had translated a book by that time, and typing, because as a writer, you learn how to type, and I could type fast, so I went to work as a temporary secretary for Kelly Services. At the time, uh, I used to wear a badge when I went into offices that said, hello, I'm your Kelly girl, Paul, <laughs> <laughs> which was uh, quite uh, <laughs> quite an education. <laughs> At any rate, um, around that time, after working in uh, temporary sec- as a temporary secretary and as a translator, which didn't pay that much, somebody said, well, you can make uh, $12 an hour, which uh, in the 70s was a good piece of money, teaching English as a second language at a community college. So I applied, got a job, and before I knew it, I was a, an administrator at Long Beach City College. I was the assistant director of the Indo-Chinese Refugee Assistance Program. And we had about 450 students in the program, and I had 18 teachers and 45 student aides working for me. 
And one day I was standing at the blackboard, substituting for one of my teachers, and a little voice in my head said, this is not the plan. <laughs> and I thought to myself, you're right, and I'm going to do something about that. So I took some, uh, well, first thing, I, I went back to research, how much does a novelist make? And it turned out that the average earnings of a novelist in the United States at that time were $850 a year. <laughs> oh, wow. Thought, Don't you know, spend it all in one place. Yeah. Exactly. That's not enough to pay gas for my car. Uh, well, one of my cars. At the time, I had two cars, and I had a secretary, and I had all kinds of benefits, and I was in really a great position. But I thought, no, I'm going to quit my job, and I'm going to be a screenwriter, because I took a couple of classes at UCLA Extension in screenwriting. And I did quit my job after a few months, and I had six months' worth of money saved up. And, of course, I didn't earn a penny as a television writer for another two years. But then I did. And my first job in television was writing for Guilty or Innocent, which was one of the early reality reenactment programs. And they reenacted famous trials. And uh, I wrote all the reenactments. Not all of them. I wrote half of them, and I supervised all the rest. I was the executive story editor. And that's how I got that uh, into that. And then I met um, Jeremy Finch, who became my writing partner. And we got all kinds of interesting jobs, including Twilight Zone, which probably brings me around to what's more interesting to you guys, which is writing science fiction. That's going to be our next question, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, what was it like writing for Twilight Zone, writing an anthology sci-fi? Yeah. I mean, well, just such a, a classic and a popular one. It was a fantastic experience, I have to say. We not only wrote for them, but we chose stories uh, and listened to other writers. So the, our typical day was to listen to several pitches. We heard in the, I guess it was four or five months that I was there, we heard 75 pitches, which is a lot of pitches. Yeah. Um, but we also wrote many things. And one of the great things was there was nobody above us except Mark Shelmerdine, who was the executive producer. So uh, he... And uh, Jeremy Finch, my, my writing partner, as I said, and Joe Straczynski, J. Michael Straczynski, who was mm -hmm. a pretty well writer, uh, were the only people on the staff. And we would decide what shows got written. But we were allowed, Jeremy and I were allowed to write whatever we wanted to write in so long as Mark would say, OK, or not OK. And he said OK nine out of ten times. And that gave us the freedom to come up with anything that we wanted to do within the outlines of what we had set out to be the new show, which was normal people, ordinary people in extraordinary situations. And that was it. That was what the original Twilight Zone was like, and that's what um, they had aspired to when they did it for CBS and not quite made it, and that's what we decided to do. So I would dream something and come in in the morning and say, I had this crazy-ass dream. There's a guy... Uh, who stops a deer by pointing at it. And then we started to talk about it. And we would come up with an idea. Who is this guy? What happened to the deer? Um, why is this important? What, do I, what am I trying to say here? And that's how we got our ideas. Uh, Jeremy would do the same. He would come in and say, I had an idea about a trunk. You open it up and it will give you anything that you want. And in the end, you have to run from people because they want stuff from you. So you hide in the trunk. And then somebody else opens it up, and you're the person that they wanted. <laughs> I thought, that was kind of an interesting idea. So we made these things into episodes. I mean, this is what I should uh, put a little uh, 
parentheses here. This is what happened when we were working on the show in syndication. Before that, we had pitched to the CBS version of the show and, and sold two stories to them, uh, one of which we came up when we were having a lunch in a restaurant, and we scribbled down just a couple of words, and we pitched it to them. They said, yeah, we'll buy that. And then another one, uh, which turned into Aqua Vita, which was one of my favorite episodes, uh, that eventually George R. R. Martin rewrote. Uh, he rewrote the story for us, and then we wrote the uh, teleplay. This was because they had gone on hiatus just shortly after they bought our story. And they said, we don't know if we're going to be able to make it. And we said, well, when are you going to know? And they said, well, sometime in July. So sometime in July, they called us up and said, yeah, we want to do it. Uh, so come on in. And they gave us the new version of the story, which basically was the same, except they had changed the central character, or George had changed the central character from a model to a newscaster. And we thought, hey, that's a really good idea for what we were going for. And we were off. I mean, it was a great experience. Uh, we got to meet a lot of interesting people. George was one of them. George is the creator and writer of Game of Thrones. And uh, we, read, we met uh, Harlan Ellison in our experience there, who was a great science fiction writer. Uh, George Clayton Johnson, who was one of the earliest... Um, one of the earliest Twilight Zone writers who had written with Rod Serling mm -hmm. and many other, many other people. We met Carol Serling. We met a lot of, a lot of people. It was a very interesting experience. That's neat. And we got a WGA award nomination for one of our episodes. So we were very Oh, excited. which one was it? That was the one we did that was called uh, Father and Son Game. Here's another example. This is, <laughs> this is some forward thinking at the time. And it also shows you that we just came up with ordinary people in extraordinary situations. My father at that time had been very, very ill and had been ill off and on for years and years and years. And they were talking about uh, kidney transplants and heart transplants and all kinds of things. And it put me to think, um, well, what if we transplanted one organ from a person to another? What if we'd made that organ instead of a, an organ, we made it a mechanical device? All right. Well, everybody would say that the recipient of the device was still a human being. But what if we transplanted all the organs? We would probably still say that person was a human being. But what if we transplanted the brain, which we pretty much use as our, our signifier for humanness? Mm -hmm. And uh, I thought, well, at that time, computers were really starting to take over the world. And I thought, well, what if we put everything that you ever felt and thought onto a computer disk? and put it into somebody's brain. So th this is what mortality will do for you. And I, and I thought, oh, well, that's a good idea. And we developed that further. And I used a lot of my father's uh, life condition and his um, dealings with his second wife, who was much younger than him, and me, who was kind of resistant to the idea of a, a stepmother who was four years younger than I was. Mm -hmm. um, and we threw together this episode, which became something that was uh, very prescient in terms of what machines can do and artificial intelligence and things like that. So that's how it came about. Now, you've also written written a few episodes or participated in a few episodes from some shows like Who's the Boss, Perfect and Strangers. Perfect Strangers. I, I watched both of those. They were very funny. <laughs> Thanks. So I'm curious. Perfect Strangers. <laughs> so we're kind of curious. Perfect Strangers. Hysterical. <laughs> Your experience, how was it different writing for comedies? And, and obviously you liked it, I'm thinking, by the response. <laughs> right. It's fun. You know, uh, you get paid to laugh. And anytime you get paid to laugh, that's a good thing. 
even if you're sitting there torturing yourself over a line that you're writing, you still laugh at the end of it when you come up with that line. If you don't laugh, you have to go back to the drawing board and come up with something better. But you should laugh at your own work. And if you don't, you know, that, that is a problem. But I, I view science fiction and comedy as kind of coming from the same cavity in the back of my head, which is a weird way of looking at things. Comedy is surprise without scaring you. And science fiction is a different kind of a surprise. It's like it's thinking outside of the box, if you can do that. And the best comedy is written by people who are able to think outside of the box, who just can come up with the best surprises. And the best science fiction is comes from people who understand people and put them into situations that people today don't face directly. Or put them into situations in the future that kind of mask what you're really trying to say about the present. So I, I guess you could say I like writing for both of them. I don't have a particular favorite. I just dig back in there and whatever comes up uh, at any particular time is what I want to write. When I wanted to write for money, of course, I have to write what people want me to write. So that's why I wrote for Who's the Boss and Amen and Perfect Strangers and Los Beltran, which was a Telemundo series. And I wrote Beyond Belief, which was uh, a sort of a science fiction semi-Twilight Zone series for Dick Clark Productions and Fox. It's, it's very hard to predict what I will come up with. I think most writers like to, like to choose a particular genre and stick with that. And this has always gotten me into trouble with my agent, who's always said, well, please, just stick with one thing so I can sell you. And I say, I, I don't want to do that. I just want to write what I want to write. So I'm just going to let the creative yeah. process take you where it goes. Yeah, That's exactly right. I, I just finished writing and directing a movie called The Wedding Dress. And uh, I'm in post-production now. I think I locked picture this past week. When I say I think, you know, you never know. You you uh, hope you've reached the best it can be, but maybe somebody will have a better suggestion. I'll find out. But anyway, this is a story about uh, a wedding dress that passes down from generation to generation and the women who inherited and the choices they make because of the people that they love. And in the first generation, it's about a woman who chooses to love an American. It's a, a British woman who chooses to love an American soldier in 1944. And uh, he's an American Jewish soldier, which makes it even more difficult for her. Then her daughter chooses to love a woman and wants to get married to a woman in 1967 in Berkeley. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody thought of that then. Yeah. That, was, that was so far out of the imagination. And then the third one is about, well, the, the woman who was a lesbian did not have children, but she had a protege, and the protege... Was, is considering marrying a, a Guatemalan, but she won't ask him because she's too proud to ask him to marry her. And then uh, he comes to her uh, being chased by the immigration authorities and said, let's get married. And she doesn't want to do that because that's not very romantic. So uh, it's, up to the, it's up to the woman who is the lesbian from the middle act to convince her that she'd be stupid for not getting married to this guy. He, she loves her. I mean, she loves him. He loves her. They have a great life, but she's throwing it away because of pride. So at any rate, uh, the wedding dress finally gets worn in a wedding. The other two, they don't. Oh. So oh, I you never this. know what you're going to come up. Well, thank you. Thank I you. really want to see website, You can go to the uh, wedding dress website on Facebook. It's wedding dress, the movie 
on Facebook. Oh, oh yeah. good. It, it does good. sound very good. Is, Thank what's you. the tone like? Is it uh, a drama, a dramedy, a comedy? Is it yes, all of both? <laughs> all of it. Uh, it is a drama, but it has comedic moments. Okay. Oh, good. That's my favorite kind. <laughs> yeah. So it doesn't have a lot of comedy, but it does have comedy. So because life has comedy, life has uh, laughter. Yeah. It should have. If it doesn't, you're in the wrong kind of life. <laughs> You've done made-for-TV movies in the past, mm -hmm. and one that you're known for, you did for UPN, uh, the alien abduction movie. That was, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it's supposed to be the first network movie, uh, made movie that was digital video. Is that right? It was the first uh, network movie for, on digital video, and it was also the first found footage movie that had any kind of popular release. Uh, it was before Blair Witch Project. Oh, it was, huh? Yay! Yeah. Good for you. Yay! <laughs> but we didn't get the recognition for that, but that's okay. We, uh, we were paid, and we did, uh, we did have a good time making this movie. This happened because I was, I was working at U.S. Customs Classified as um, coordinating producer, and I was gathering all the stories and writing stories for the show. It was also in one of those reenactment shows. Uh, Stephen Cannell was on the show. Uh, who is a very well-known uh, one-hour writer. And one of the directors came into my office one day and started talking. And he said, you know, I want you to look at this film I did. Uh, it was kind of like a student film I did it years ago. And it's uh, about an alien abduction. And I said, really? Tell me more about it. And he told me. And I said, I can sell that. And then I called up uh, somebody I knew at Dick Clark Productions, where I had sold a pilot previously and said, uh, I've got this idea. It's War of the Worlds on video. He said, come on in, let's talk. <laughs> That's a good way to describe it. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I, I took uh, the director, Dean Alioto, who had written the original story in, and we sat down with um, Neil Stearns, and, who was the development executive there. And he said, okay, uh, I'll buy that. Just a minute. And he went out into the, I think I'll buy that, I think he said. And he went out in the hallway and he brought Dick Clark in and Dick sat down with oh us and gosh. talked with us. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> and we, we told Dick the story. Uh, and then I told Dick, funnily enough, he had worked with my father something like 50 years ago, maybe six, 55 years ago on a project they had done when Dick was still in Philadelphia. And my dad was in Cleveland. But at any rate, we sold him the story. And then we went out and we sold it the first place we went to which was Showtime, and they dragged their feet on their business affairs people, couldn't make a contract, so we went out and tried to pitch it again. We went to Fox, who laughed us out of the office and said, oh, we would get laughed out of Hollywood if we did this. And I said, oh. really? <laughs> really? Okay. We went down to UPN, and uh, when we walked in the building with Dick, everybody started coming out of their offices to see him. And Lucy Sahini, who was the chairwoman of the network at the time, came into the pitch, which you never, never have. And she came in. We pitched it as War of the Worlds on videotape, and we were into it like five minutes. She said, she jumped up and said, I'll buy that. And that <laughs> oh, that's great. One of the great things about it is we went up to Canada to shoot this, and we, kept, we used a, um, a pseudonym for the title so that no one would know what it was about. So we just called it the McPherson tape, or we called it uh, country music, or something. We called it country something. Huh. don't even remember what it was. Uh, but when they finally broadcast it, these were one of the early website users. This was 1998, I believe it was, when they broadcast it. And it was early in the use of websites to promote television shows. But they promoted it at the end of the show and said, please check into our website and tell us what you think. 
and they had a questionnaire. Uh, do you think it was real or do you think it was fiction? And they had a million people uh, check in that night. Wow. And over half of them thought it was real. And there were discussions on discussion boards all around the world, as a matter of fact, because it was very popular in South America. Uh, people did not believe that it was fiction. They said, you know, that was government misdirection, that it was total, uh, totally real and that those aliens were real and that their government's trying to hide it from us. And I, and I thought to myself, wait a minute, we have credits at the end. <laughs> Credit the aliens. We give their names. My name is on there. I know that I, I know that I made it up. So, or at least you think yeah. you did. Well, yeah, that was before people were really savvy, and before we had the the coined term mockumentary. You know, I mean, people were. Yes. I remember in the Blair Witch Project, people thinking that a lot of people it thought was that was real. real. And I remember when I first heard about it, the Blair Witch Project. I said that is so terrible. They, I thought they really took these people out in the woods and scared the crap out of them for real and filmed it. And I was like, that's just sick. And <laughs> I thought that they, you know, they, they actually were tricking these actors, you know, yes. because yeah. of the way they were explaining it, you know, and, and I thought that's such a terrible thing to do to somebody. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. I love the, it's the power of film. <laughs> it is. So strong, so powerful. And sometimes you just can't talk people out of it. They still, you can, scare people with video it's just amazing that you, on a little screen you can watch it on your tv you can watch it on your computer and you can scare the life out of them even though you know they know when they're watching it it's not real yeah. it's not happening but it's so sucked into the story and that's what's a beautiful thing about writing that you can affect people's lives on these little screens or these big screens. what doesn't matter what size screen it is these days it's on any screen uh just by writing down some things that pop up into your head and then you make them come alive. It's it's a great thing to be able to do. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. Well, now we've talked about some of the, the work you've done in the past and currently in the present. So I'm curious, with all the work you've done, is there ever anything that didn't make it to air that you wish had, like they got shot down, uh, a scene or even maybe an episode you were trying to get on air for Twilight Zone, something like that? Oh, God, yes. Oh, there's so many. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> really. There are many. There's the first story we wrote for Twilight Zone was a really interesting little story, and uh, it was about a Hollywood actress who is working as a waiter because uh, you know she can't make any money. So um, we played a, a trick on her in this in the story, and she goes into the kitchen. When she comes out, she's on stage, huh. suddenly on stage, and doesn't know what part she's playing. Looks out into the audience, and they're laughing because she's come out carrying this thing, and she's obviously playing a waitress in the story. I wanted that to get on. And we, we had uh, an Orson Welles type figure in that story that was pretty good. I even wanted something better, uh, a scene to be shot better when Twilight Zone did, uh, the CBS version did Aquavita. We had uh, a couple that had aged sitting on a bench, but we didn't want to show them. We just wanted to hear them. And in the, in the foreground, we wanted to see another young couple because it was about uh, Fountain of Youth and Bottled Water. And we wanted to see another young couple playing and riding their bicycles and our older couple talking in voiceover and then reveal them so that we learned that at first we think they, they made the decision to go back and become young. But in truth, they made the decision to grow old together. So they screwed that up in, in, in filming it. I mean, they left the script the right way, but the director missed that cue, which really bothered me. Uh -huh. 
but you know what are you going to do? I was a low. That was my first network sale, so I didn't. I wasn't in any position to do anything. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I, was just, I was just so happy that uh, we got that and we got into the Writers Guild with that. That and that same week that we wrote that episode, we wrote an episode of Brothers, which was a Showtime comedy, and we wrote the episodes simultaneously because we got a call from Twi- from Twilight Zone and said, "Okay, we're going to go ahead with a story." And then we got the call from brothers and said, come on in and pitch. And we did that on Monday and on Monday night. They said, okay, write the, write the screenplay, uh, the teleplay, and have it ready by Friday. And Twilight Zone said, have ours ready by Friday. And we said, whoa. <laughs> oh, my gosh. You didn't sleep when all it week, rains, did you? When it rains, it didn't sleep all week. When it rains, yeah, when it rains, it pours. And so we got those both in by that Friday. But there's, uh, we also wrote another episode of uh, Brothers that never got made. They paid us for it, never got made uh, because the executive producer was fired and they fired us along with him because we he had brought us in. So they said, OK, we're dumping this guilt by association. <laughs> yeah. Well, that happens a lot. Also, they, they decided not to use a, a recurring character and they fired him, too. So he was the main character in that particular episode. and There was no way to get around it. So oh, wow. we got unlucky there. And then, you know, I've written at least a dozen movies for hire and only about five or six of them have been made. So that happens to everybody. I mean, I'm lucky to have that number made out of the number that I've written. So that's a very common occurrence. So I'm curious now about, you know, everybody hears about a producer or studio wanting to change something. But what you said about your Twilight Zone episode where a director just misunderstood the script. Mm-hmm. Um, do you see that happening very often to, to script writers and how do script writers try to fight that in some way to help clarify, you know, so communicate if you're not to on the set when it's filming, you know, because yeah, usually not on set a lot of times. So exactly, Julie, you're you're totally right. I insist on being on the set for everything that's shot of mine. Now I can decide not to go, or I can decide to leave after the first day, or the first hour, or whatever. But I insist on being on set, and I have done ever since I started, uh, except for the the Twilight Zones that were shot in Canada. That I had no control over that. And I wasn't about to go to Canada back and forth, you know, to, to um, be on set. And also, it was during the writer's strike when they were filming most of the episodes and I really couldn't go. Mm. But for everything else, I've been on set. And so even though I'm on set and even though the actors will ask me or the director will ask me questions about things, and they won't always, but sometimes they will, things get screwed up. Even on set on my own film, I had to put the writer in his office I wrote it, I directed it, I produced it, but sometimes there were things that I had to change as the director that um, I would say, you know, that doesn't work. We're going to have to do this. Or we don't have time for that. We can't shoot that. We're going to have to do this. So you just never know what's going to happen. Now, fortunately, I could consult with myself when I was shooting that movie. (laughs) And and I did. And sometimes I would say, you know, uh, fuck the writer. I'm just going to do what I want to do. And (laughs) I just did it. And, you know, my DP would look at me and say, you, you can make that change? I said, of course I can. And that's what I'm going to do. So here we go. Because <laughs> you've got time constraints. You've got actors saying, you know, I, I don't think she would say that. And you want to tell them, of course she would say that. I created this character. How the hell would you know what she would say? <laughs> but sometimes they're right. Sometimes they're not. And sometimes I'll say, you know, let's try it that way. And let's try it the other way and, and see what works out in post. Or I'll just say, you know, you're right. Let's do it that way. Or, you know, I have something else in mind for that. So let's keep it that way. It depends. So it's difficult. uh, But the only way the writer can protect his work as much as possible, if he stays just a writer, is to 
be on set. If he's a writer producer in television, that's a different story. You have you have a lot more control. And if you're the director writer, you have even more control. And, and that's the way to go. That's what I've discovered. We heard that you were nominated for a Glad Media Award. Uh, can you tell that's us right. a little bit about what led to that? All right. Uh, this was for a Telemundo episode, and it was about marriage, gay marriage. And the Telemundo was not about gay people, but there was a gay couple that lived next door to the central family. And I thought to myself, well, I had been involved in a situation with a friend of mine who was gay, who wanted to live in Brazil. He had been in Brazil several times and he wanted to go live there because he could get a job there if he had a work permit, if he had citizenship. And at the same time, I had an ex-girlfriend who was Brazilian and she wanted to live in the United States. And I thought to myself, well, why can't they do that? Uh, why can't I put them together? So I put them together and they got married and everybody was happy. And then I thought, well, what would have happened if that situation were played out and my friend who was gay wanted to get married to a gay person, to another man? Mm -hmm. And he hadn't told this other man about this marriage and it would suddenly come up, but in a funny situation. So... What I have is this couple next door uh, to the Los Beltran, the Beltran family. So uh, one of the gay men comes over and says, hey, uh, I forget his, uh, his name, but let's just say George proposed to me and I'm so happy about getting married, except I'm already married. And <laughs> so we just had to deal with that situation. And, and by dealing with that situation, I just brought out the fact that marriage is marriage. And if two people are in love, what the hell? Why can't they get married? Yeah. And it it just really doesn't matter. And basically, again, uh, I went back to that theme in uh, the wedding dress because that's what part of that is about. If two people are in love, doesn't matter if it's a man and a woman, which is where I start that story and where I end that story. It doesn't matter who they are as long as the souls want to be joined. I mean, that's the idea, right? Mm -hmm. So it could be a man and a man, a woman and a woman, or a woman and a man. It doesn't really matter. That's where that came from and and they so they nominated they submitted that episode the series got nominated as a whole but they submitted that as episode as their sample episode oh that was wonderful thank you so you've written for spanish speaking mm -hmm. programs also obviously quite good <laughs> yeah right. i don't know what your background is what chitlick well chitlick is a name from belarus <laughs> not spanish so <laughs> <laughs> You don't even know where that is, but it's uh, on the border of Poland. It's Poland. Uh, it's a, it's one of the it's former, former Soviet, Soviet bloc. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, next to Poland. My my family is kind of the borders moved around a lot. So you could say I'm Polish, Jewish, American. <laughs> um, but I spent my junior year at the University of Madrid uh, in regular university classes. And I had to learn how to speak Spanish. Uh, I had studied Spanish in school for a couple of years. When I went over there, I could read Cervantes in Spanish with a dictionary, but I couldn't order a glass of wine mm. in a bar. Yeah. So naturally, since I was 19, I decided to spend a lot of time in the bar, and I learned a lot of Spanish that way. And I used to write down every single new word I learned every day and study them until I became quite proficient in Spanish, and I changed my major to comparative literature with Spanish as my major language. And when I left school, I went back there and lived for another year teaching English and writing. And as I said earlier, doing what I wanted to do. 
and I became quite proficient, uh, mistaken for a native many, many times. And since then, I've worked as a translator and I worked, I taught at the University of Barcelona's film school, uh, both online and on the ground. So I've been to Spain several times to teach there. And I've been to Cuba to teach in the film school in Cuba. I didn't and realize I, Americans could go down to Cuba and do that. Well, Americans can go to Cuba. It's a misstatement to say that they can't go, but the problem is you can't spend any money there. Ah. You need a, a permit from the treasury to go, to be legal, to go there. I tried to do that because as a, as a university instructor, you can do that, but they refused my permit because my class was too short. <laughs> it was only a two-week class, and they wanted, it had a 10-week minimum, so I said, okay. I got one of my former students who was a Mexican national to buy me a ticket through Mexico. And I went to to the east, far east, to, you know, the um, one of the resort towns on the east coast, okay. down by the south of Mexico. And I went through there to Cuba and went, came back again. And when they asked me at the U.S. border, where did you go today? Where did you come from? Mexico. I said it came from Mexico. <laughs> That's all it said. I love now, the resourcefulness. Yeah, they didn't say where you were at before you went to Mexico. Yeah. You know. They never said that. They just want to know, did I have any tobacco, firearms, or, or alcohol with me? And I said, no. Um, but now I'm a university, I'm full-timer at uh, Loyola Marymount University. At the time I went earlier, I was working at uh, Loyola Marymount and UCLA. Uh, and now I get, I can travel under the permit that's been issued to the university. So I don't have to go through all that. But it's a pain in the neck. Um, I've also taught at UNIAC, which is the uh, is a university in Santiago, Chile. I've taught there a couple of times, and I've given workshops for in Australia for the Australian Writers Guild, which is not in Spanish, but uh, <laughs> that's pretty interesting. But almost and, a separate language, all the same. Almost, yes. <laughs> oh, very much, and very much a different culture uh, in a lot of ways. Very strangely different. You know, uh, Winston Churchill used to say the uh, Americans and the English are two cultures divided by a common language. <laughs> and he was he was so right in that. Uh, something I learned when I lived in London for, for several years that, and had an English girlfriend. I could understand every word she said, but I didn't always understand what she said. Yeah. <laughs> what she meant. As, yeah, we'll talk to our friend. Ian, and he's in, in Manchester, and I'll be like, speak English. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> and I'll be like, speak American. <laughs> yeah, it's a tough thing. Um, you have your right. book, Rewrite. And so, first off, what was it that prompted you to write it? Well, I when I was teaching at UCLA, I was teaching in a program called the Professional Program in Screenwriting. And they didn't have a class in rewriting. And I knew from working in television and film that you don't get anywhere until you've been through about 10 or 15 or 20 or even 25 rewrites of something. Uh, it doesn't reach the, the studio floor until you do an average of 25 rewrites, according to some people I've spoken with. So I thought to myself, well, we've got to have a rewrite class here. And I talked to um, the people that were in charge. And they said, well, no one's ever thought of that. And I said, well, why don't we try it out and see what happens? And I did that. And doing that, it became a very popular class. We always had more people that tried to get into it than we could accommodate. And one of them one day said, you know, Paul, I've been taking notes. And here, you should write a book about this. And I said, well, I don't really have that much time. I have to sit down. And he said, here's the outline. <laughs> <laughs> I said, 
Okay. And he out, he gave me a great outline for the book. And I, I acknowledge his outline in my first, in the first edition. He was really a, a, a great guy. And um, I, from there, I just sat down and said, okay, you're totally right. I've got to write this book. And I've got to have as many examples and I've got to watch as many films as possible to back up my thoughts. Uh, it's funny, I've just been writing about Aristotle. I have a, a blog for scriptshark.com, scriptshark.com, that I write every month. And uh, this month I'm writing about beginnings and endings, especially about endings. So I went back and did a little research to see. I know that Aristotle didn't write plays himself. He observed plays. And so Aristotle's poetics and Aristotle's laws and his ideas about beginnings, middles, and endings are just observed. He didn't create these laws. And I thought, well, I just want to observe what the structures are, what the conventions are of modern movie making and relate those because just saying that they have a beginning, a middle, and an end is not enough. And just saying that they have a first act, a second act, and a third act is not enough. And just saying that they have an inciting incident and, and whatever is not enough. So I, I came up with my own approach, my own um, grid, if you will that you could lay down on a film script and most film scripts. And I say most because no, not every film script conforms to this, but most do most American films do. And I use that as the basis from which to say, okay, here's what you guys need to lay down on your film to see if it meets these points and see if the character um, changes and to see if, if the there's conflict in every scene and all the various other things that you need to do to, to write a script. And I wrote it in the simplest possible way, in the way that I talk as much as possible, the way that I give my lectures, which are usually generally short, and the way that I talk with my students about their projects. And then I put that in the book. And people said, hey, this reads just like talking to you. And I said, well, okay, good. That's what I'm aiming for. The only criticisms I got on the book after it came out and was reviewed, and it was reviewed very well, where it needs more examples. So I thought, hmm, I think you're right. I'll do that. And so I've added a lot more examples. And of course, when you write something, as soon as you turned it in, you think, oh, shoot, I forgot something. Or, oh, I, I wish I'd done that. Or six months later, you come up with a new idea that applies. And so I applied all the new ideas I came up with in the several years. I think I first published it in 2008. So in the next five years, I came up with more ideas specifically about how the antagonist works in a story and how the antagonist has his own seven point story and, and his own goals. And we often don't think about that when we're writing an antagonist. We just think that he's standing in the way of somebody's goals. But in fact, he's got his own goals mm -hmm. and they just happen to be in the way of the other person's goals. Well, or he has to... Yes, yeah, sort of like the villain. The villains rarely see themselves as the villain. They think they're in the right. They're the good guy and the other guy is in his way, you know, and... and and so really everyone's the protagonist in their own mind. <laughs> in their own minds, exactly. I mean, this was brought to, to mind years and years ago, and I believe it was William Blinn uh, who told me this. He's a writer. He wrote Brian's Song, among other things, and many other, which was one of the first successful TV movies. He wrote one-hour series for the most part. And he said, you know, the villain comes home and he opens the door and the dog greets him and, and uh, the kids say, hi, dad. And the mom says, hi, honey. And he gives him a kiss and he sits down in his chair and he watches TV. 
I mean, obviously they don't do that, but you know, the idea is the villain has a normal life, mm-hmm. and the, in in the villain's normal life, he's not the villain. Right. He's just a person who has a different goal, and that's why in romantic comedies, you don't have to have a villain; you just have somebody who's not the right choice. You have adversaries. You have an adversary, somebody who wants the same thing that you want. And that doesn't make them a villain. Sometimes even that person comes around and becomes your ally. Mm-hmm. Like uh, in um, The Fugitive. Oh, yeah. uh, it, it can happen in a lot of different ways. That's uh, what I brought into this book, and that's why I wrote another edition. My, my publisher said, you know, if you've got enough new stuff, we'll publish it. And I said, well, I've got stuff I wanted to put in the first edition. And I have a bunch of new stuff, too, so uh, let's do it. That's what I did. I know a lot of times when people, uh, myself or other people who are writing a script, when they're done with the first draft, they always wonder, what do I do first? I know it's what not now? quite that simple, as you can't <laughs> order it like that, but what would you normally suggest, like, the very first thing they should do when they're looking over the script and how they're going to change that draft? Well, the first thing they should do is put it away for a while. Mm-hmm. Two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, a month, whatever they feel they can afford to do. Uh, and that depends on you as a writer uh, and you as uh, working under deadlines, uh, self-imposed or otherwise. Uh, the second thing to do would be to read the script over again with a notepad and write down all the things that come to your mind. Uh, actually, let me back up. The first thing to do would be to read my book. <laughs> then, of course. Very wise choice. Then the next thing would be to sit down and read the whole script all over again and see what you would change without even thinking about what the book says. Then look at the book and say, okay, is my character what I, what I want him or her to be? Is my central character or my supporting characters what I want them to be? Is the central emotional relationship character what I want them to be? And then I'd look at the story. Is the story what I want it to be? Does it have the seven-point structure that Paul's talking about? Uh, or do, am I using the 12-point mythic structure? Or am I using no structure at all? Or have I done something really bad, like one of the scripts I just finished reading, I'm consulting with uh, a major production company on, and uh, it ends about page 71, and then it ends again about page 82, and then it ends again about page 105, mm-hmm. uh, which is what happened to artificial intelligence. I don't know if you ever saw that movie. Yeah. Seen, that ended three or four times as well. <laughs> Uh, and that confuses the audience, and, and it's a problem. So I would read the, reread everything, make sure I can write my seven points so I have them clear in my mind. Then I would probably revise those because I'm pretty sure I screwed them up the first time. Then I would read again and write a short line or two about each scene, each beat in the film. So I'd write a new beat sheet. And from there, I can start making cuts and changes and additions and subtractions. And from there, I can go back. Once I get a beat sheet that I'm happy with and the story is good, then I can go back to my original draft and say, okay, what can I save from this original draft? And what do I need to write? And what do I need to cut? And that's the way I would approach it. It's a killer. It hurts. Trust me. I go through, I read my own stuff and I go, oh, no, why did I do that? Why? I've got to I've got to change that now. I've got to go back. And if I do that, that has a ripple effect. And I'm going to have to change this. And I'm going to have to change that other thing as well. But i got to do it. Uh, here's something that happened to me when I was cutting the film that I just shot. Now, remember, I described it as three different eras. And that's the way the first cut came out. It was one era, and then the next era, and then the next era. So it played like three short films. And one of my colleagues said, 
you know, it would be more cinematic if you cut it together asynchronously, kind of like Pulp Fiction is cut. So I said, you motherfucker. <laughs> you are totally right. And I went back, and I hope you can do that on your blog. You <laughs> uh, I went back, and I recut it, and sure enough, he was totally right. It's so much better. It moves faster. It enabled me to cut out a whole bunch of stuff that, uh, that wasn't necessary to move the story. And it just is it's better to watch, but it caused me a, a lot of pain in recutting it. And I thought, okay, you got to do it. You got to do what's best for the product. And so rewriting is always best for the product. Certainly rewriting a first draft is Hemingway used to say a first draft is shit. And he's totally right. Mm -hmm. They always are shit. Uh, Jane Anderson said the same thing. You've got to have a first, you have to have a shitty first draft in order to get somewhere. You have to have something on paper to work from. And, a lot of writers tell me that's where they find the story in the first draft. They don't find their voice till the fourth or fifth draft. They don't know who really the central character is until the second or third draft. This happened to me, too. I wrote a movie called El David with a writing partner, Mark Scheffler. And at first I thought it was about the woman. And then we realized halfway through, no, it's about the guy. So we had to change a lot of things. Uh. You just never know uh, until you really get it down on paper. And then it's the exciting part is looking at your first draft or second draft, whatever you have put aside for a while, and saying, oh, I see what I can do to make this better. Yeah. And that is a great moment when you go, oh. And then it's followed by shit. <laughs> but okay, that's the way it goes. <laughs> I, think, I think the rewriting is what really sets apart the, the successful writers. You know, because anybody... Almost anybody, not everybody, but almost anybody can come up with something the first time around. But being able yeah. to analyze and, and, and really tear, break it down and just analyze what it is you're trying to say, that, that's really sets you apart from the professionals, from the amateurs. <laughs> you're totally right. And, you know, I've, I've met many, many, many writing students or first-time writers or new writers, whatever you want to call them, uh, who say, I wrote this. This is really great. I'm really happy with it. I think it's everything I want it to be. And I'll say, well, is this a, what draft is this? And they'll say, that's the first draft. Uh, you know, I just need a, a little polishing on it. And I go, mm, okay, sure. Let me read it. <laughs> and then I read it and I say, well, you know, you need a little bit more than a little polishing here. You need a story. Yeah. Uh, and, and you need some characters that change and you need this and you need that and the other thing. Now, I have to say, there have been some writers that have been in my classes where I, I read their work and I go, damn, that's good. That's really good. That just needs a polish. Yeah. And it happens. Yeah. I mean, uh, rarely, but it does happen. I could probably count that on the number of times that's happened on one hand. But still, that's a very it's, exciting it's moment. It's possible, yeah. It's possible. It does happen. Um, but most professional writers, as I say in my book, most professional writers figure on 20 drafts, wow. 25 drafts. Well, it's tough out there. <laughs> <laughs> now, do you ever have the danger of rewriting too much? Right. Uh, yes, you do. Uh, and I have had that danger, and I have run into that where I go, no, the previous draft was better. <laughs> took I'm it a little back. too far. <laughs> uh, what, what, a bridge too far, as my students will say. Or it's like uh, cooking, this... and you realize you put in way too much. A little back, backing yeah. off that spice would have been a little better. <laughs> yeah. Uh, how do we get the salt out of this? <laughs> yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> yeah. Well, put in a raw potato. But other than that, you're in trouble. Yeah. It's a tough thing to rewrite, and especially rewrite your own thing, which is why I wrote this book. I mean, if I'm writing for hire, which is my preferred way to go, 
I have people to tell me what to do. They'll read it and they'll say, you know what? I need more of this, I need more of that, or this, this has to change, or can you put in a little bit more of that? Or we have access to a, um, a bunch of dogs. Can you put in a bunch of dogs? Whatever it is, <laughs> the, the, and sometimes it's as stupid as that. Um, I'll do that, and that's fine. I'm rewriting for money. Uh, sometimes I'll have people that'll tell me to rewrite. Uh, I had James Orr and Jim Crookshank as executive producers on a project I did for um, a company years ago, Reicher Entertainment, and it was for the Olsen twins. And they were brilliant when they, they would give me notes and they would say, you know, you should do this. Go have a look at the Wizard of Oz and how they deal with that and look at this movie and how they deal with that. And change every time they gave me notes, it changed the script for the better. Mm. I've also had people say, well, you know, we, we want you to take that out. We want you to do this. We want you to do that. And I'll say, uh, okay. And I'll come back and I'll have not done their notes because they're too stupid to, to do. And <laughs> they'll either forget the note or they'll say, why didn't you do that? And I said, you know what? I, I couldn't make that work. Uh, do you have an idea on how to make that work? <laughs> and then I'll just leave it at that. So sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes I'll say, yeah, put it back in. Now, about how many times... Do you think you need to rewrite your work before you show it to somebody else to get their input? Is there a num magic number or just when you think you need help? <laughs> There's no magic number. It's just when, I, when I, I'm snow blind, mm -hmm. when I can't tell what it looks like anymore. I can't, I, I, I'm too close to it. I don't know. That usually takes me five to six drafts, maybe seven or eight. Mm -hmm. I don't show it to my agent until I've already shown it to two or three other people and gotten their notes and, and done a rewrite and, or not done a rewrite and gotten notes from somebody else and somebody else. And I have a, a group of people, I call them my trusted advisors, who give me notes and I give them notes. I mean, it's a two-way street. It has to be uh, because it's a lot of work to do that. And I, for other people, I charge a good deal of money to give notes on a script. So when I ask for notes, I always have to give back notes as well. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. That's going to be five to six. I usually think it takes me about eight drafts to get to my agent. And then she will give me notes. <laughs> and then I'll either say yes or no. And uh, I'll do another round and I'll send them back. And then it's time to go out. That's great. Now, um, I know that you've talked about your wedding dress film that you've just made. Do you have any other projects in development that you'd like to talk about? <laughs> um, I do. I have. Uh, well, I have two projects. I have one project that I'm developing for television right now, uh, actively developing. I'm talking with, um, well, I can't tell you the production company, but let's say it's the production company of a very famous director. And by very, I mean very. <laughs> and uh, we're going to go to CBS with it um, because I know the president of CBS. I worked on a project with her years and years ago that... Um, she bought when she was at Lorimar when it was part of uh, Warner Brothers and I, I can't tell you any more than that except it's going to be part old-fashioned and part very new-fashioned and that's all I can tell you uh, it's it's a series and I'm very excited about it, it could be it could be really change it could really change my life uh, in a lot of ways good in good ways well when you can Have talk enough? about it more you'll have to let us know yeah, <laughs> on that oh, one well, well as soon as I sell it, the words will be there, and I can't, I can't talk about it until I sell it. Uh, then I'm, I've got a couple of scripts that I would like to get in, uh, in motion, one of which is called Rugburns, uh, B-E-R-N-S. It's about a character I created 
in a series of detective novels, uh, mystery novels. Uh, the first of the series is called Burns with an E, and it's about a guy in Los Angeles. In this particular episode, I guess you would call it, it's a move, I, I'm going to turn it into a movie. This particular book is about sexual addiction and brother. So he believes that his brother did not commit suicide but was killed, and he is looking for the killer. And in researching his brother's life, he becomes involved in uh, sexual addiction like his brother was. Mm. With the same woman. <laughs> oh. Must be yeah. something to her, huh? <laughs> to her. Some, she's got some of that magic. So uh, that's the next project I'd like to direct. I've written it, and I'd like to direct it, and we'll have to see how that works out. Have you ever directed someone else's script? I have not. I have directed. The only other directing I have done uh, has been on television when I directed for Real Stories of the Highway Patrol and U.S. Customs Classified when I directed episodes of reenactments for them. And it was always my own. I never directed anybody else's. So I always had that luxury of being able to cut a line here and there and not get a lot of shit from the writer. <laughs> unless you look in the mirror, right? I was going to say, unless, <laughs> unless, I, unless your dual personalities start really fighting it. I have a problem. <laughs> but I always had a lot of fun doing those. I even acted in one. I was a stuntman in one of my episodes uh, because I wanted somebody to ride a bicycle and take a fall. And no one, no one else on the set knew how to do that, and I did, so I did it. So. Oh, that's great. And if you get yeah. hurt, you have no one to blame but yourself. So. Yeah. That's right. I didn't even wear a helmet. That really was against my uh, rules. Oh, but... good thing you didn't get hurt. The paperwork's yeah. a pain. <laughs> yeah, that would be. You know what they call a, a, a motorcyclist or a bicyclist without a helmet at the emergency room? Organ donor. You got it. <laughs> <laughs> I call him that when I see him. Uh, on uh, motorcycles, I'm like, well, I hope I hope they're an organ donor. Someone might appreciate those. Yeah, it's such a crazy thing. <laughs> so yeah, that's that's what I'm working on next, and um, what I'm going to write next, I don't really know. I, I I do have another idea for a play, also based on reality, about four actors who had various degrees of success, and uh, one of the actors is very ill, and how they deal with that. Oh, interesting. All right. Before we go, please tell everyone where they can find you online and also find your book. Thank you. That's great. You can find me at rewritementor.com. That's my website. I need to do a little updating because I'm going to be doing another seminar in Italy next summer. And I don't have the information about that up yet, but it will be soon. You can also find me online at mwp.com, Michael Weesey Productions. That's my publisher. Mm -hmm. And you can just Google the hell out of me because I'm all over the place. <laughs> so, uh, thanks to the book and thanks to Twilight Zone and thanks to a couple of other things I've done. Yeah. So, And if you're interested in going to film school, well, I recommend uh, Loyola Marymount University as a film school. We ranked number eight in the nation last year, which brought us, we were up from 13 the year before. And I think that's partly because of our innovative writing and producing for TV program of which I am uh, a driving force and so that's where you can find me oh, that's great. Excellent. thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk with us it was a lot of fun it was You're it was a pleasure thank you Chris Vaughn.
Vogler. I'm the author of The Writer's Journey, Mythic Structure for Writers, and also Memo from the Story Department, Secrets of Structure and Character. And you're listening to Genretainment. Well, thanks to Paul Chitlick for chatting with us. And if you're a scriptwriter, we recommend buying his book, Rewrite, published by Michael Weasley Productions. You can find the book at mpw.com or from booksellers like Amazon. Mm-hmm. So that's it for today's Genretainment. We'll be back soon with all new guests from our favorite films, TV shows, novels, and web series. Keep up with our shows on iTunes, Facebook, or at the websites genretainment.com and scifipulseradio.com. And don't forget, you can also check out the other great shows on the Sci-Fi Post radio channel, like SFP Now, The Roundtable, and more. Until Until next time. time.